Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy. I hope everybody had an outstanding Thanksgiving. It's actually a very unifying holiday that we celebrate in the United States. And for my listeners internationally, we extend to everybody the best wishes for Thanksgiving and this upcoming holiday season. We have a great guest with us today with some very real world experience. She's a contributor to Journals of the Day. She brings a perspective from China and from the United States. So we welcome to the Common Bridge today, Javi Chung. Welcome to the Common Bridge. Our listeners like to know a little bit about the people that appear on the Common Bridge. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were your early years spent and you know what kind of things have you done for work and your family and education? Okay, I, I'll see if I can give a succinct uh, uh, description of my life. Uh, I may fail. We'll see. Uh, so I was uh, born and raised in a very small town in the Sichuan province of China. And that is really poor. And I, my parents, uh, they were illiterate and uh, struggled their whole lives to to put three meals a day through a series of menial jobs. And uh, so that's my household background. And I spent my first 10 years um, in this small town before I uh, went to another province for college. Um, uh, and after college, I was just uh, um, working as most other people on the streets. And uh, fast forward to uh, 2015, I was uh, admitted to the School of Public Policy in Pepperdine University. And uh, that really uh, the, is the beginning of my of my life and my schooling in America. So, so you're at Pepperdine, and now I understand you're at Purdue University completing a doctorate. Yes. Well, congratulations. That's a remarkable and very accomplished academic career. So you've had experience both in China as well as in the United States. And I understand you have a child as well. Correct. Okay. And he's a five-year-old? Eight years old. Eight years old. Okay, great. Yeah. One of the things that you've written about recently is how much Beijing or the mm -hmm. Chinese Communist Party really loves the fact that the United States of America is undereducating our children. Can you tell us about that? That was, I thought, a very unique perspective. Yeah, I think the Beijing, the CCP, they've been closely monitoring the U.S. for decades. And I think um, more evidence emerging in recent years of how the CCP has been able to infiltrate into all these major uh, cultural, societal institutions in America, such as university, think tanks, and government, and Hollywood, and sports, you name it. And so they truly understand uh, everything is happening in America. There are two remarkable features of the American educational system, in my view, that has been seriously wrong. 
The first is that uh, they've been lowering the standards, academic standards for students in the name of protecting their emotional well-being and or to, to provide for a equity for all students. So they do not put teaching or training uh, in skills up front. Instead, from elementary school all the way to institutions of higher learning, they've been really just the color. I think the color is the best word to describe um, the, the actions, the measures they've been taking, just to call those students, trying to protect them and lower the burdens and this and that. This is one thing they've been doing. And the second thing is that, as we have seen for the past few years, elementary schools all the way to college, they'll be indoctrinated kids about, you know, all those wokeist ideologies, such as anti-racism or white America is inherently racist to CRT. The gist of my piece that being published in Wall Street Journal is that in both countries, kids, the youth have been indoctrinated politically. So in China, kids are being indoctrinated with those jingoistic nationalism. And in America, kids are being indoctrinated with all those anti-American ideologies. But the difference is that in China, at least the students, they are learning something. They're learning some important subjects such as math, such as physics. So they've been really being hard on students. They have a very, very high academic standard for kids. So in the future, they might be politically brainwashed, but at least they have some life skills. They can do some jobs. Whereas in America, I mean, so they've been indoctrinated into all those ideologies. And meanwhile, they're not really learning something important. You put these two things together, they, this is in, indicates a scary future. It does. Now, I've had some experience with urban schools in America, and mm-hmm. it broke my heart that young children or you know young adults were being graduated from high school that were functionally illiterate. They didn't have a sufficient reading comprehension, basic computation skills, uh, and certainly writing and speaking were things that were lagging behind. And now I hear, well, your parents were not literate, and, and perhaps they were in the countryside, but how do things differ today? What would a, a young student going to school in a rural area of China or in a major city like Shanghai or Beijing experience and perhaps how would that compare to the United States? So China revived college uh, education in 1978 or 1980. I mean, just uh, shortly after Mao died. I mean, before that, I mean, nobody really went to school. And so, yes, yeah, since then, um, the, um, all kids, all school-aged kids, they are required, man- mandate, that's a mandate from the, the government. All school-aged kids must go to school. And so I think um, I did not really research on that. I don't know the status, but I think my generation and of and onward, those kids, they, on average, um, they receive um, much, much more education compared to our uh, uh, parents, the generations of our parents and grandparents. Uh, that's one thing. And the second is that, you know, this uh, educational inequality in China is just mind-boggling. And so, uh, of course, I mean, all those the best, the finest resources, be that education, be that healthcare, this and that, they all concentrated in urban cities, in major cities, Shanghai, Beijing, whereas in rural areas. And the quality of education received is just mind-boggling, inferior 
compared to the things the kids living in urban city receive. Just to give you a one small example from my experience. So my mother tongue is not a Mandarin. So because I'm from Sichuan province and we have our own dialect. And so we kids go to school to learn how to speak Mandarin. You know, I remember my Chinese teachers in my elementary school, he couldn't even speak Mandarin. And so um, you can you can see the, the quality is just shockingly low. And I remember, so for my generation, kids started to learn English in middle school. And uh, my teacher, my English teacher could barely speak a sentence of English. And so that just gave you a small, um, the education inequality. And Mandarin, of course, is the native tongue of more people in the world than any other language. I think it's an essential skill. And yet very, very few North Americans speak Mandarin, although China is quickly becoming competitive with the United States as being the largest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, you wrote in one of your recent columns about the experience of your son in school in China and then in the United States. And can you tell our audience about that? So my, my son, um, he completed two years of uh, elementary school in Chengdu, the capital city of Sichuan. Compared to my generation, I think uh, kids today, the school workload actually is lower than my generation because for the past Two decades or ten or ten years, the government they are trying to lower the burden, the academic burden of students, because they realize that the, this uh, pedagogy of rote learning is not really working very well. I mean, so Chinese kids they can only do they can they can score very high on, on tests. But uh, they don't have the ability to think. They are not creative, and uh, they sorely lacking in imagination. And so there are many, many downsides that has been noticed. And so the government has been taking measure to counter that uh, downside. So they've been lowering the workload of, of kids, especially elementary school students. Still, I, I noticed my son, I mean, he spends lots of time working on his schoolwork every day. And school starts at 7 or something like that. So he spends lots of time in school. And also they come back home and he spends lots of time doing homework. In China, he was doing more homework or less homework than the United States? Much more, much more. And so just to compare to the workload here, I mean, yeah, it was much, much more in, in Chengdu. What type of school is he going to today in the United States? Is it a public school or a private school? Public school. Is it a third grader? Yeah, third grade. I think if I understood the column that you wrote, that his math requirements, for example, that he has in the third grade today, it was about what he was learning as a five-year-old in China. They are learning more math, much more math compared to the, the American kids with the same age or with the same grade. But okay, so it, actually it was me who taught him um, fraction at the age of five. And uh, but still in school, he realized, oh, those uh, math problems are so easy because I've already learned it in my first grade in China. And now, I mean, they're learning the same thing Hati had learned in first grade in Chengdu. They are just exceedingly easy for Hati. I think the message is that Chinese schools today, they are still very demanding academically on kids. They expect kids to learn in terms of academic subjects. They expect kids to learn just much more than them. There's a term of art now called equity, that 
we seem to be teaching a lot of things about equity. And Mm -hmm. what did your son learn in China about equity? And what does he learn in America about equity? No, I mean, in China, we don't talk about equity. I mean, we we don't even talk about equality. China is a brutal competitive society. There are two things going on in China. It's extremely meritocracy. But 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 you have to put that into a context that um, in China uh, there is also a massive institutionalized privilege. By that I mean the party members, their families. They obviously they just uh, share better and more uh, resources compared to the other common people. So for common people, there is just a brutal competition going on among those people. But if you are born into a households, your your parents are. Uh, party members or working or governmental officials. And uh, yeah, you have a much, much easier pathway to success by that. They mean money. So we, we don't talk about equity or equality in China. And here, um, amazingly, and uh, I th- before I registered him to the school, I was thinking about maybe um, the school would teach CRT. Amazingly, the school seems not teaching CRT. I think I'm um, happy about uh, uh, the school, at least uh, they are just not going crazy to the left and just uh, teaching kids all those nonsense, those uh, statements that unproven and also unprovable. There's no, not much social learning in terms of homework. Um, each day, Hadi comes back home with um, just uh, one piece of paper of math homework, and that's it. So it's, it's always, it always takes him just one minute to finish all those <laughs> math homework. You mentioned that the elites, the party, Hmm. that those people have a special status. And one of the things that we've had in America is that the public schools and standardized tests were a Hmm. way for a student not born to privilege, not born into the the party elite, would would be able to show they could advance. Hmm. The United States now is starting to do away with standardized testing, Mm. do away with measurements of skills. Mm. And it seems that you're saying that a person in China who can demonstrate that they're good at math could perhaps earn themselves a bigger opportunity. Am I hearing that right? Correct. Correct. But also, we should keep this in mind. If you were born in a rural area, and uh, as you can imagine, so the the education, the quality of edu- the education is just exceedingly inferior to the the kind of education a person born in cities would receive. So, as I said, so I think there are two layers. One layer is that it is meritocracy. If you can demonstrate you're good with, with math and the first tier universities such as Tsinghua University, Beijing University. So that's the one layer. And also another layer is that because there's a mind-boggling inequality of resources. So the chance for for a rural kid, I mean, is just exceedingly lower than the chance uh, urban kids would, uh, would have. Today in America, should there be special accommodations for a person of Chinese heritage? That's a very good question. Um, it's hard. I mean, uh, for people on the left, they are talking about um, reparations just to, to compensate for the past wrongdoings. And uh, because of the past wrongdoings and everybody, they don't have the 
really the, the same uh, starting point. I mean, that argument certainly has some merits, and as you can imagine, right? But the, then the, the, the challenge is that, so to how, how far past we should, we should attribute, we should put this uh, uh, the starting point. I mean, um, each one, each, I think each uh, ethnic group, they all have certain disadvantage over the different uh, phrase, uh, phrases of history. And so how do you calculate that? How do you even measure that? And so I don't, I don't even though that argument has certain merits, but I just don't see how we could make a policy based on that argument. Um, so that's one thing. And a, a second counter to that argument is that I think um, societies, there's always a certain amount of unfairness in society. If you really want to correct every ounce of unfairness, in the end, you just have a totalitarian state with the person or a group in the center just to distribute every resources equally. But do you really think we would have a philosopher king who is so so benevolent and so um, committed to uh, fairness in society? I, I don't I don't think so. And then the third one is that when we started really treat people as a member of a group instead of individual, and then we start to give groups certain special treatments, I think that the harm is would uh, outweigh the benefit of doing that. And go back to your earlier question about if I think a Chinese group should be given certain advantages or special treatment. I cannot speak for for the other Chinese Americans, but I doubt that would be uh, something the majority of Chinese Americans would want. You know, most of them immigrated to America precisely because um, there is a equality of opportunity in this country. They fully understand there won't be equity, there won't be perfect equality or everything, but they appreciate this opportunity of equality so that they can make something of themselves. Because this just go back to the, the something I've just mentioned in China. I mean, the, the, the institutionalized privilege for the party members, for people born into a better household is just uh, it's insane. Well, here, at least, uh, they, they, uh, if you can demonstrate, it, there's a much, much more uh, opportunity of equality. And uh, as in terms of myself, no. <laughs> you know, I think um, my skin color is the most superficial character about myself and is the least thing, is the least indicator of who I am. And, you know, for those identity politics adherents, I just find it so, so bizarre and stupid. Let me just prove it stupid for them to think that one person's uh, most superficial character, such as gender or, uh, or skin color, what else, or sexual orientation, those are the most, most superficial characters. I'm saying how they think those characters can define a person who he is. Isn't that just so stupid? Are there safe spaces on university campuses in China? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> we, we don't do that. I mean, that's why so many young um, Chinese, I mean, those uh, netizens, like internet citizens, right? They, they, they love making fun of those uh, white leftist 
they love they just uh, they they think those everything here going on is just uh, hilarious it's just insane crazy stupid hilarious what about the use of different pronouns is that something that chinese universities <laughs> are spending time on no no no, no. i mean th- th- those are so frivolous and somehow they those frivolous um picayune debates oh. Gosh, this is just a virtual signaling. Um, honestly, I just I, I'm not sympathized with, with those people who who into a virtual signaling by putting a label on the chest. Okay, my profound pronoun is this and that as to as demonstration of my compassion for people um cert, people of certain groups. That's just um, frivolous. I'm trying not to be mean, but. <laughs> You've had a unique experience, and so you've got a view. Let me ask this question. This is a very difficult question. It's one that we're struggling with in America. So the question is this. If the United States is going to be an open and free society, how do we achieve racial equality? How do you achieve racial equality? I don't know. I, so first, you have to really define what you mean by racial equality. Every racial groups have the same outcome. Is that what you mean by racial equality? Well, there are people that that advocate exactly that way. That they say that we must have racial inequality because not everyone has the same thing. If we're an open and free society. How do we achieve racial equality? So, for those people who think, for them, if they think、uh, racial equality is every racial groups have the same outcome, if that's their definition of racial equality, and then there wouldn't be any room for individual autonomy. There wouldn't be any room for individual freedom. And ju- just you have to really take into account that.、Um, The outcome is de- is decided by so many other factors, not just、uh, your skin color. That's the least、uh, contributing factor. I mean, the、uh, the outcome is decided by your choice, your individual choice, and your in the environment you grew up, your your parents, and、uh, yeah, it's just、uh, there are so many other factors other than your skin color. I, I actually I don't think skin color really plays a A major role. I don't think skin color plays a significant、uh, role in in deciding a person's outcome. If if it does,、uh, it must be on the very bottom of the list. Yeah. So if you really want every group have the same outcome, then there there's just no room for individual autonomy. And in the end, you just you really have to have a totalitarian state that、uh, mandate everything and、um, constantly. Redistribute resources in society. I mean, I'm emphasizing constantly, and then just、uh, yeah, shifting some something away from some groups and to, to other groups. They think、uh, as long as they see there is some uneven. I mean, just、uh, a simple question: How does the state could really prevent people to make their free free choice? There's just no way you can do that. Let me. Ask you this: Many students from China come to the United States for their higher education. Why is that? That's a good question. 
I don't know if it is still be the case today or it will be the case in the future. But in the past, I think this is a fact that America offers a much better higher education than China does. I mentioned,、uh, you know, those this pedagogy of rote learning. They really kills the imagination and、uh, creative thinking. Critical thinking. So I think we have decades of evidence demonstrating that Chinese kids—they are very good at scoring high on standardized tests, but they're not creative. And the Chinese, as a nation, has seldom made、uh, much、uh, innovations in, in the twentieth、uh, century. And I think I would agree with that—that that the innovation and great breakthroughs from pharmaceuticals to technology to Transportation have evolved from the United States and evolved from our free and open and merit-based system. And once we all try to become the same, there's no place for a Bill Gates. There's no place for a Steve Jobs. There's no place for the founders of Google because they would be considered to be outliers or heretics. Javi, if I may ask you a personal question. You chose to immigrate from China. There's 185, 190 countries in the world. Why did you pick the United States and not pick some other country? Oh, that's a good question. Nobody has ever asked me that. Yeah, this just、uh, goes back to the book I mentioned. Actually, I wrote about it in several of my essays. At the age of sixteen, I encountered this book. It's a obscure book written by three obscure scholars. So they visited America in the nineteen nineties, and then they wrote about this book. So in that book, I really just encountered a world that is drastically different from the world I grew up in China, and so. That book talks about education, school, medium, and this and that. At least in that book, the America I had learned at that age is is a lively country. It's daring, and、uh, it encourages students to think for themselves, like independent thinking and also critical thinking. They encourage students to challenge conventions, to challenge authority. I think the conclusion drawn from that book is that what makes America today is these all those values. America as a nation has long been has long cherished until now. Those values like、uh, independent thinking and the and the be bold, dare to try and、uh, do not fear of losing and this and that. So, yeah, in a word, I. <laughs> I was just blown away by that book. I mean, everything in that book, everything in America, everything about America in that book is just completely different from the world I grew up. So yeah, I just from since then I just、uh, I had a yearn for going to America to receive a what I call traditional liberal arts education. So education is not about memorizing and、uh, scoring high in standardized tests. Instead, ed- liberal arts education is about. So let me let me put it in this way. So education, the Chinese word education, in its Latin roots is is lead out. So my understanding of liberal arts education is to to lead this your soul out of darkness towards light. To understand, to know, to seek truth. If I if I could put in, put in that way, yeah. So since then, I just、uh, I. 
I had a yearn to go to America to study, uh, to receive a good classic liberal arts education. So that's a very powerful statement about the foundations of the United States. It has been about freedom. It has been about seeking your own way. It has been about achievement. Now, we have not been a perfect country. I don't think anybody's been a perfect country. No country's been perfect. Though it seems to me we spend a great deal of time caricaturing America in who we are versus a, a just a clear-eyed look at history and things we've done to improve things and to consider what we need to improve in the future. We need great people like you and people coming from all over the world to join the United States. And I look and I, I see with great satisfaction that people of all colors, people of all nationalities come to the United States for that promise. And I also read in your writings and I hear in your voice the fear that we could lose that by becoming locked into one way of thinking. And, and that's why we do this show. It is fiercely nonpartisan that we welcome voices from across the political spectrum, and we've had them and we'll continue to do that. And we'll also be calling out the media news reporting groups that are doing their best to divide us. And that we need to keep in mind that there are more people like you who see the promise of America versus the mistakes that we've made. Javi, I want to go back a little bit, if I could, to the students in the United States mm -hmm. compared with students in China. And it's about suicide. Mm -hmm. And if you know, is a student more likely to be suicidal in China under all that pressure or more likely to be suicidal in America? Oh, this is hard to say. The suicide rate among students in China is actually quite high, but we don't know the real numbers, and no real numbers would ever be exposed to the world from China. So, but the contributing factors behind those suicides are quite different. In China, most students, they, they, commit, they commit suicides is because of this pressure. This pressure, this uh, coming from school, coming from society, coming from parents, is just unbearable. Here is the different. There, there's not that much pressure. We've seen lots of reports and uh, data suggesting that many, many young kids they feel uh, depressed, lonely, isolated, and had all those mental issues. And of course, the contributing factors must be multifaceted, and there are just so many. Social media is a huge contributing factor. I don't know why people are so... No, I, and I do know why, but I actually, I've been thinking about if there's any a day people can be afraid from social media, I doubt that would happen. And I, I don't use social media, and I, actually, I despise social media. That really um, takes people away from real life from real human personal interactions with others. And uh, instead, they are just, uh, they are um, spend all their life glued to their devices. You, you can imagine that, that alienation, that, um, that would, uh, you can imagine that the psychological impact of that kind of alienation to humans, let alone young kids. 
So social media is, is, a, is a huge contributing factors. And also there are other things going on. Um, I think um, this roots is deeper. But American society for the past few decades have been really um, infantilizing the young generations, just coddling them. And you don't want the kids to experience some challenge or difficulties. Instead, the parents, school, they do everything to protect them from perceived harms or even challenges or difficulties. I, I don't understand why American society somehow developed this mindset that we should protect kids to the best ability. If we want the kid to grow up, to grow well, humans must experience challenges, difficulties. Otherwise, we will be... We, if we live in a completely protected environment, protecting us from all those harms or difficulties, and the, the outcome is this person will become just a fragile and a brittle. My experience that successful people often talk about their greatest challenges the times they thought they were going to fail, the times they did fail. Henry Ford famously went bankrupt several times before he figured out how to build a car at a profit. Thomas Edison, just you know, to do his inventions, tried over and over again. Steve Jobs was one that said, no, we can do better and constantly pushed. I know myself in my career, it wasn't fun at the time, but the, the hardest parts when you were living in terror that you weren't going to make it. Those were those challenges. And along with those challenges was the freedom to fail, that you could take chances. And if you took the risk, and you could be richly rewarded. Also, you could you know, go bankrupt if you didn't play it right. But that's really what I think inspires humans. And your conversation today has been very inspiring for me. I believe our listeners and viewers will get much from this. I hope that you'll consider being on our show again. And is there any closing thought that you'd like to share with our listeners and viewers before we sign off today? Just on the note of failure. I now recall a conversation I had uh, just months ago with a clearly a liberal or progressive progressive liberal, probably uh, of your age, 50 or 60. He said, we shouldn't uh, put kids in a situation he will fail. But then I thought, no, why not? I mean, f- failure is just, uh, we must fail so we can succeed. And as you just uh, put it uh, adequately, yeah, I mean, without a failure, then we wouldn't be able to succeed. So I just don't understand the mindset. We don't wish to see kids to fail. Failure is just an essential step in one's growth. Without a failure, we wouldn't be able to succeed in anything. I yeah. think that's very well said. If we don't fail, we don't know what we're not good at. By way of example, I know I could never make a living in any kind of art form. Um, I tried it, you know, just because we got that in school, but it was pretty clear that wasn't where my talents were. And so I I love that as a closing comment. Javi, you've been a great guest on The Common Bridge. Common Bridge is available worldwide on most podcast outlets and directories, also on YouTube TV, Richard Helpy's Common Bridge YouTube channel. And with that for today with our special guest, Javi Chang, this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. 
Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy.